Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by me, Samli Jill Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Today we're talking about birds. I'm going to talk about a composer who was fascinated by bird song and put it in his music. And I am going to talk about birds on labels, birds and their effects on vineyards, and the spreading of grapes. And maybe a little more. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and we've made it easier for you. Uh, We've actually developed a tier system uh, that our patrons have, our people that want to be patrons have asked for. We realize the whole $1 a month or a gazillion dollars a month is kind of confused. I mean, make it easier for you. Also, on our Patreon page, you'll find a link to buy merch. You can get a Scores and Pours t-shirt or a Scores and Pours hoodie, and we appreciate your support. Thank you to all of our patrons. Hello, Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. How are you today? I am great. How about you? I'm I'm fantastic because I'm about to taste Riesling and listen to some awesome new music that I think most of it I haven't heard. I would imagine none of it you have heard, but you never know. I can't wait. And even though it's dreary here in Minneapolis, we're at Mm. about 30 degrees, or we're about to go down to 30 degrees in no time, I'm choosing to put my focus not only on my content, but the inspiration for this show. Which was? You have to jog my memory on that one. Well, I was sitting on a beach, and I was looking at birds. I think that they have incredible behavior, you know, certain flocks of birds on a beach, whether they're all like standing at two o'clock, not looking at the ocean, but they're all looking one way or whether they're, you know, they're swooping in tandem is super beautiful. And I remember talking to you at some point and being like, are there birds like in like bird calls that are mimicked in classical music or they're used as muses to write compositions. So much, yeah. There's so much. And I was like, awesome, let's do a show. Yeah. And then I was like, what the hell am I going to talk about? <laughs> and then I, I thought to myself, I was like, well, there's plenty to talk about because birds affect vineyards, usually in a negative way. Mm. Um, they are a nuisance. Well, grapes are yummy. They they are nummy, and they they spread the vine, which can be um, hurtful to surrounding flora. Ah. And they're depicted on labels sometimes. Well, that's a positive thing. I that's would say. you know, it's yeah. usually kind of cool. Yeah. So th- there's a lot of different ways that we can talk about birds and how they affect what is finally in the glass. Nice. Which is cool. Do you have like a favorite bird, like a bird you think is the prettiest, or like has a pretty song, or? Things like that. Well, I mean, I'm not. I I'm like about as amateur of a birder as you can get. I I really only know stuff mostly about birds here in our surrounding area. Like I can't say, oh, the black-breasted, red-crested, blah blah blah. <laughs> here, one of my favorite birds that we have, actually quite prevalently in the U.S. I love chickadees. I think chickadees have some of the sweetest little calls. <laughs> Um, and then there are about a million finches that are beautiful, song finches, warblers. Mm. I love white-throated sparrows. But for me, it's not about what they look like. I don't really give a shit what a bird looks like. I think they're <laughs> fascinating and cool and wow, you can fly. Woo! But I'm way more interested. <laughs> wow, you can fly. Woo! Okay. I'm way more interested in their song, which, you know, I think as a musician makes sense. And uh, some composers took that very seriously and that kind of um, inspiration from nature and birds being, you know, nature's original songsters and composers, I you're, think. You're pretty, uh, you're pretty good at it, too. Like, I, I know that... Well, here I am, yeah. But if we go to, like, Florida, I'm not. I, I certainly know a lot of the calls that are indigenous to where we live here. And, you know, I know who's passing through 
Because, of course, we have birds that don't leave, right? I mean, chickadees, for example, they stay here all year round. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have several species of birds that don't leave for the winter. Do Um, they have a fuck it's cold call? Like when it's like 30 (laughs) below and you can't really hear them because they're muffled and buried somewhere. It's like, Uh, no. (laughs) And they're saying the same thing we are. It's just in bird call. No, I mean, the thing is that sometimes you don't really hear birds just because sometimes they're only making noise if they're mating. And if they're not mating, then you're not going to hear them for a few months kind of thing. And, you know, some birds only make noise when they fly. And this is all of a sudden an ornithological Yeah, I know. I mean, I am not the expert on it, but I do love bird call and I love hear, I love knowing what I'm hearing because it's such a part of, of the landscape for everyone's life, you know, and it's something that we really take for granted because there's just hundreds of them all the time all around us. When it comes to other favorites, I, you know, birds, as you were talking about, do they have a fuck it, it's cold call? No, but they often will have like They'll have their primary song. They'll have a secondary song. They'll have a, you know, maybe that's different than their mating call. Maybe that's different from their, you know. And so when it comes to that, I think there are some really fun examples of, like, birds that have really shitty main calls and really great secondary calls, like a blue jay, for instance. And I'll put it in here, but, like, blue jays (laughs) on their face value are super annoying. They have a beautiful secondary call. And when I hear that, I just, that's one of my favorite things to hear too, because it's really unique. There's another bird, and then I'll stop. There's a bird in the North Woods called the Viri. And it's a type of thrush. And, you know, birds have two sets of vocal cords, and what a viri does is just unlike anything you've ever heard. So I'll put that in here, too, because it's really badass. And now I'm done. Well, I'm ready for a little wine. Yeah, let's drink. Let's drink. Let's do it. Yeah. First and foremost, we'll talk about, I want to get to the birds, they're actual birds that are wreak more havoc on a vineyard than others. Sure. And I think, you know, certain people out there may think, well, kind of all birds are created equal. But it's mostly um, here in the Northern Hemisphere and in the United States specifically, we'll say, it's mostly um, starlings. So for those of you who don't know, like, the difference between a starling and a, you know, a finch, say, um, starlings, they're, like, got the, they're kind of black and have this little slight iridescence about them with um, these beautiful, like, little white flecks. And starlings eat the whole berry, which is crazy. Mm. And then you've got certain birds that will, like, just peck at it, sure. you know, to kind of suck a little bit of sweetness out. Um, and those are like robins and finches. Blackbirds are notorious. Any bird that flocks like in huge numbers, those are mm. the ones that will go down and just obliterate wow. a huge percentage of a vineyard. Wild turkeys can be an issue as well. And yeah, so just to say that not all birds are created equal, yeah. um, like owls, raptors, Birds that are carnivorous, those birds that are encouraged, they can be encouraged to kind of nest around to, you know, thwart these flocking birds because they don't really, obviously if they're carnivorous, yeah, they might eat on some grapes now and then, but that's not by and large their diet. Yeah. So yeah, let's drink. (laughs) Sweet. So what is this? There's an owl on the front of it. You're right. It was really hard. (laughs) The last thing that a producer is going to do is say, here's my wine it was affected by birds this year. So that's not really an easy thing to find. Um, yeah. it, it does happen kind of vintage in and vintage out, uh, yeah. d- depending on the place. But this does have a very kind of Art Nouveau-looking owl on the front, which is why I chose it. But it's also because I love this producer. <laughs> Weiser Kunstler is the yes. name of this producer. It's a Riesling from 2019. Um, imported by Von Boden, one of my favorite German importers, and somewhat new to the market, like in terms of being released. Okay. And here you go. Thank you. Passing the glass over. It's very um, straw hay kind of colored, I would say. Yeah, and definitely no hints of like when sometimes a wine can be 
uh, with a little bit more straw saturation or gold or any, no copper, nothing like that. You're right. It's like very light yeah. straw in color for sure. Yeah. Like and pretty clear. Like Goldilocks it hair or something. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> look like there's any sediment in it or anything. It smells like minerals. Oh, yeah, and like sour pears. Like I, I smell a little sour, like a little kombucha-y, mm, but in the, in the best way. Okay. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Oh. So this is... It's so good. Oh, my gosh. It's got like this apple juice finish. Cheers to Scores and Pours. Scores and Pours. And a delicious, delicious wine. Long, long finish. Yeah. Got nice, bright acid. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you more about the producer and more about um, the region in a moment, but okay. yeah, let's get to some moussaka. Today we're talking about one composer. There are many examples of composers using or flirting with bird song in some way, shape, or form for centuries uh, and centuries. Um, Maurice Ravel... you know late 19 late uh, 1800s early 1900s more early 1900s um, you've got uh, Jean-Philippe Rameau in the Baroque era but I really wanted to focus on this composer Olivier Messiaen because he took it very literally, and eventually it took over his composition and appeared in all of his music. So, and and on top of that, he was like a literal ornithologist. So the guy knew a lot about birds and uh, transcribed birdsong, literally transcribed birdsong. So he made notes out of what he heard robins singing, or the French equivalent of robins. Mm-hmm. So it's really remarkable uh, stuff. And when Olivier Messiaen, let me tell you, he was born in 1908 and he died in 1992. When he was a student, he took uh, composition lessons from Paul Ducat, another French composer, who you would be familiar with from the fact that he wrote The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Ducat, did it look like Ducas? Yep. Okay. Just yep. for those of you who are going to go look him up. Oh, yeah. And we'll put The Sorcerer's Apprentice in here, too. You'll recognize that right away. And Ducat told Messiaen to listen to the birds. He said, listen to the birds, they are great masters. And Messiaen, I mean, it's not like Ducat only told Messiaen that, but Messiaen took it in a way that really changed his life. And um, the very first time Olivier Messiaen put birdsong into any of his music was actually uh, when he wrote his most famous piece of music, which is a piece that he wrote while he was in prison camp during World War II called Quartet for the End of Time. And in that piece, basically Messiaen was uh, you know, like a field medic kind or maybe like an assistant field medic. I can't remember exactly what his role was in the war, but he had bad eyesight, so it's not like he was on the front lines. But his company got taken over, got uh, captured by the Germans, and so he was in this prisoner of war camp for like, many, many months. And he, there were other musicians too. And someone had a cello, someone had a clarinet, someone had a piano, and someone had a violin. So those are the instruments he wrote this piece for, Quartet for the End of Time. The third movement is just for the clarinet, and it's called The Abyss of Birds. And it's the first time you hear Messiaen incorporating birdsong into a piece of music but it's not all strictly birdsong. It's a mixture of music evoking um, certain passages in the, in the Bible book Revelations and intermittently interspersed with bird calls. So you hear the clarinet playing multiple roles here in this piece. So let's listen to some of it.
So what should we be listening for here? When do the bird calls specifically come into play? It's super obvious. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's... it's Slow down, Jill. Yeah. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> What thought-provoking music, because it's so, it seems so simple, yet it's not. Mm -hmm. The the note changes are all over the place and unexpected. Mm -hmm. Third gear going into fourth gear. Is this a tune that most clarinetists would know? If you mentioned it to them, they would know of this piece because it's... If you mentioned it to a professional clarinetist, yeah. absolutely. Okay, that's yeah. what I wondered. This this piece is... This is such a famous piece for a, a number of reasons. Um, you know, not least of which the fact that he scribbled this out, you know, in prison because a guard was kind enough to give him some paper and a pencil. But I mean, you musician students study this piece for a, that's one reason, but for a, a few different reasons, yeah. And birdsong is the other reason. That piece again, called Quartet for the End of Time, we're going to hear other works by Messiaen, but before we leave this piece, I just want to say um, it's a long-ish piece, and not all of it is very fast-moving. It's There's a movement that's basically marked play it as slowly as possible. And, uh, you know, Messiaen experimented a lot with the concept of time in music in many different ways, and that's one of them. And, uh, you know, this piece, just a very significant piece of music in the body of 20th century classical music. Well, in, in all of classical music, really, but just uh, it's, it's cool to see him dabble with the birds in this one movement in this greater work and then have it just overtake his composition later. But in, I think, really effective and meaningful ways, not in a way that, like, Oh, that's all he did. But yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. What is what you're telling us is he's playing a lot. It's a slow piece. So you're saying everybody north of well, let's say Nebraska, yeah, should just look out the window yeah. in about two weeks <laughs> and push play. Yes, that's what you're saying. Okay. All right. Great. Well, you want to know about this producer? I do. This wine is so delicious. So Weiser Kunstler, I this is a Riesling. I mentioned Weiser Kunstler before, but this is a Riesling from 2019. So, you know, kind of new vintage Riesling. It is a fine herb, which is more or less synonymous with halbtrocken or half dry, which means off dry. It tastes like less than that, but yeah, that could be because would, of yeah. like the searing acidity sometimes can make something seem mm-hmm. less potentially sweet than it is. Lots of acid. But this producer, so they're in a, an area of the Mosul, Mosul's the region, so we're south, far southwest Germany, called Traben Trarbach. Nice. Okay? I know, I don't speak German, really. I know Vasislos Kinderfraulein because my dad used to tell me that when I was little. <laughs> anyway, so we're in the middle Mosul, which is, um, the Mosul is a tributary of the Rhine, for those of you who have heard of the Rhine River. And Weiser Kunstler is a really cool project because um, Konstantin Weiser and his partner Alexandra Kunstler have been farming four hectares organically and biodynamically like the ones I'm showing you right now that are literally along the edges of the Mosul and that look like that. And we'll include an image from Von Bowden's website, but that's how steep they are. 
Amazing. So I can't even get I can't even try to iterate how backbreaking it is to because I've done a lot of harvests that are on slopes that are maybe a quarter that steep. So to to just tend to those vines day in and day out, which yeah. they are, yeah. whether you're pruning or thinning or, you know, doing a biodynamic preparation that you're spraying to, you know, hopefully protect the uh, vines against rot or against mm-hmm. frost or something like that. It's really incredible work that they're doing. And this label, I mean, I guess just to speak to the label, we've already spoken a little bit to the wine. This label is straight out of, you look at this owl and it could be like Art Nouveau, straight out of like the late 1800s, early 1900s when Art Nouveau was at its height in Europe. And that aside, you know, I mean that, I don't really buy wines off of the labels, hardly ever. Um, There is a beer I've talked about on the show that I do, but um, (laughs) you know, this is all estate fruit and the fact that it's the price it is, you know, it's like in the low 20s is pretty miraculous that they're farming vineyards like that. Yeah. And they're selling it yeah. for this kind of price. And I wanted to show you on a map, and I may try to take a picture of it and um, include it here. But so I'm showing Emily the wines and the bends and turns that the Mosul tributary can make. And right just technically slightly north, northeast of the village of Traban Trabak, you are in Enkirsch. And Enkirsch, just just east of the village, there's a very popular vineyard called Steffenberg. And Steffenberg, plus their estate fruit, is where all of this wine comes from. And what's crazy is the fruit from this area, we'll say halfway up this windy picture here, if you go north of a certain place, fruit is, I don't know the f- exact figures, but they have to be like half as expensive because mm. when I, when, if you go float down the river and you start talking about the wines from Burncastle, the wines from Grok, the wines from, you know, the Erden area, the famous Erdener Chepchen, the famous Grackle Himmerich vineyard, and you get into gold cap territory, like wines that are capped with gold foil and picked at a certain must weight, mm-hmm. certain bricks level, sugar level. Like we're talking three-figure wines sometimes. Wow. So the fact that these are affordable, mm-hmm. and granted they do make some more expensive dry wines, mm-hmm. but just it's incredible how when you kind of start going upriver, it's it's like a, the difference between a Mercedes and we'll say a Mini that yeah. has a great motor mm-hmm. that handles really well, but it mm-hmm. just doesn't have that insignia, so it's yeah. not as expensive. Yeah. Um, so we're getting great quality fruit here. Um, do you want me to refresh your glass, Emily Reese? I would love that. What do you think of the wine now that it's losing a little bit of its, you know, the chill it had at the beginning? Well, let me taste it and tell you. The acidity somehow seems less bracing, but I don't know if it's because I'm used to it or not. That's for sure one thing. It's a very common element with wine is the acidity on the first wine that one would judge seems way higher than Mm. subsequent wines. And it could be true, but it also is because your body or your tongue gets used to it, your palate. Mm -hmm. Um, It's only 10.5% alcohol, so that it drinks really nice and light, which Mm -hmm. is really cool. It's just an all-around pretty wine. And you know, in this area of the Mosul, they're really well known for either dry wines, which is they can kind of get higher in alcohol, or you get wines in a in a tiered kind of system of sweetness, like wines that have a little bit more sweetness and then more sweetness and then kind of quite sweet. And so it and they they get pretty spendy um, just all around in Germany. And that's a hard, I would say, pill for some people to swallow because they don't, like a lot of people aren't drinking sweet Riesling or they're not laying down Riesling like they used to. I mean, I am, but (laughs) most people don't want to go spend $40 on a bottle of Riesling. That's like the hardest sell right now I have at the wine shop. And it's the perfect time of year for that. Not that Mm. everybody's having like 50 member family social gatherings anymore, but like if you're going to have Thanksgiving dinner, Riesling's like the perfect accompaniment or like mm. holiday foods are richer, usually fattier and Riesling's perfect because it's got, like you said, a lot of acidity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if they're in that fine herb category, they're like lighter in alcohol. They're just like a joy to, to, to drink. Yes. So Weiser Kunstler, check them out. They've got a quite a, 
quite a little gamut of wines. Um, not a lot of them are in the United States, but you can definitely find them around for sure. Nice. Mm. Mm, thanks for sharing. Well, while Riesling, this one in particular, might go really well with your Thanksgiving dinner, Olivier Messiaen might not be everybody's favorite <laughs> to play in the background for dinner, but it's remarkable music. He had a remarkable musical mind. He was a synesthete, which we've talked about before, synesthesia in the past, where he would hear sounds and see colors. I don't think it was, some Some composers are really literal about it, where it's C major, they see purple or something. And I think it was more ambiguous than that for him. But he, he talks about the composers that he liked that were very colorful composers, Rameau being one of them. Um, that significantly changed the way he thought about music. So with Messiaen, he didn't think of music in terms of tonality or atonality or polytonality. He just See, thought of it as color. And that's what he tried to portray um, through his music. So we listened to the quartet for the end of time. Eventually, obviously, he got out of prison camp. And in 1952, he was asked to write a piece for the Paris Conservatory. He was asked to write what's called a test piece. The Paris Conservatory uh, this around this time, early 1900s, mid 1900s, they asked tons of composers to write what they called test pieces, and these were pieces like all the flute students would have to play at the end of the semester or term or whatever. All the clarinet students would have to play their test piece. All the piano students would have a test piece. And in the states, we you could think of that as what's called a jury. If you're a music student at the end of the semester, you have to perform in front of the panel of whoever is in charge of your department, the woodwind department, the brass department, percussion, whatever. So this was a test piece that uh, Olivier Messiaen wrote for uh, flute students, and he wrote this piece for flute and piano, and he called it Blackbird. If I could speak beautiful French, I'd be able to say La Merle Noire. In any event, this is another example of Messiaen combining elements, so it's not all birdsong, but it's very clear that there are transcription aspects of a bird song in it. So let's listen to a little bit of Blackbird for Flute and Piano by Messiaen. Do you want to hear what a blackbird sounds like? Yeah, please. I can assure you that a blackbird in France does not sound like a blackbird in the States, but this is what a, a French blackbird sounds like. Okay, well, let's listen to it again now. It's almost as good as you can do with, with, you know, trying to mimic nature because, let's be honest, nature's much more competent than humans and everlasting. So, yeah, I mean, it's a great effort, even though it's obviously not exact and never will be yeah. really. Yeah. That's cool. I made mention of some of the birds that are, you know, most responsible for a lot of the bird damage. But I didn't, I didn't really talk about the fact that any bird that flocks and that has like a migrating pattern, if you have a vineyard, which is, are most of them, right? You have a, well, I'm not an ornithologist, but a lot of birds have migratory patterns and don't stay in one spot. If you have a vineyard that's located in that migratory pattern, you're going to have flipping problems come yeah. time autumn and um, when because and I say autumn because birds tend to go many people would say oh when the grapes are sweet enough which is partially true but certain birds are actually attracted to certain elements of the grape so sometimes it's color they're attracted to and so that means obviously the grapes have to change from green to purple 
it's called Verizon, mm-hmm. or they Verizon, if we're in uh, speaking English, or they need to go from that green, solid green color to like a fairly translucent, not so opaque color green, right? And they develop more sweetness, but they also, their acidity is tolerable. Like there are actually certain birds that like tannin, mm-hmm. that like acid. And so if they like acid, they may not be able to eat and nibble on a you know, grape that has, say, higher acid than what would be in this wine. They would want it a certain way for their cute little bodies. What happens? So we get certain certain birds that like nibble, certain birds that like actually eat. You're getting a decrease in yield is one of the main problems. Like sure. and, and certain vineyards in Northfolk of Long Island, for example, sometimes the depletion rate of a vineyard can be as high as thirty percent. And there's actually, if you go online to look at, I'll talk about different like ways people try to mitigate that in a second. But there are certain sites that literally they, when they're selling netting, they have you plug in like, how many acres do you have? How much is your fruit worth? You know, how much do you sell your fruit for or your wine? Blah, blah, blah. And if you, when you type it all in, it gives you a guesstimate of like how much you'll save over the course of, you know, five years, 10 years, if you buy this netting, um, which is, it can be like tens of thousands of dollars over the course of a few years. It's pretty awesome. Another problem, though, I mentioned eating the fruit or, like, knocking the fruit off. If they're pecking it and they're creating these little holes, whether the holes are really visible or not, there's a lot of bacteria and pathogens that can get in there, and that can really yield off flavors for your wine in in a final wine. So if, you know, I have tasted, like, bird-damaged wine is just weird and it, it usually tastes like so there's we've talked on the show about botrytis scenario before like yeah. the noble rot right but there is botrytis scenario that is when it goes crazy and it's a hundred percent of your vineyard or something or a hundred percent of a bunch sure that's not okay and so that's a problem that can very easily happen as a result of of bird damage and they say that yeah it's like it can be as much as 10 to 30% a year. Um, and by doing certain steps that I'll mention after we listen to some more music, people can actually lower that pretty pretty substantially. So, More music. Yeah, let's music. Because all this talk about devastation of vines is making me want to drink. So, you know, let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about some uplifting music, or at least bird-inspired music. Yes. In 1953, so a year later after Messiaen wrote his test piece for the conservatory, he wrote a piece called basically Song Chorus of the Birds. Um, And it refers to, you know, how when you wake up in the morning, let's say on a summer day, at four in the morning, the birds are just chatting away, just Mm -hmm. doing all the birds, just song chorus. All getting it. Mm -hmm. That's what that's called in the morning, a song chorus. Because they're all like time to wake up let's mm-hmm. be birds you know the humans the majority of humans aren't up yet let's <laughs> exactly. do our thing yeah. i know yeah and the uh, region that inspired him is the jura which you know a lot more about than i do will you tell us where that is uh the jura is in eastern france kind of in the center going a little bit a little bit north okay very close to um switzerland Okay, yeah. Messian didn't like cities, I guess. He loved the countryside, and so um, he apparently spent a lot of time out in the Jura countryside hearing all these birds, and this piece uh, is all birdsong, all of it. There's no other elements of music incorporated whatsoever. Every single instrument is at some way, shape, or form playing some type of transposition, translation, transcription of birdsong, which is amazing. And in this piece, he quotes 38 birds over the course of about 20-some minutes. Well, I'm I'm like having a little bit of deja vu is the wrong word, but like a aha or a whoa moment because when you mentioned this earlier— just about the different bird calls, and I know this guy's French, and I have a friend who likes birds. I was like, well, I'm going to send it to these few people on Spotify, just a little share situation because they like that when I do that. Yeah. And one of those friends is in France right now oh, in the Jura. Neat. Teaching – well, I think she was teaching kids English, but I don't know how that's happening now during COVID. Yeah. But um, she's a friend that I used to get in a lot of trouble with um, <laughs> and is a really – I mean – 
mild amounts of trouble, let's be honest, we're both adults, but who loves nature and loves wine, loves the Jura. It's like her spiritual Neat. home. So I'll definitely, that's really cool to know mm-hmm. that he was inspired by that area. Yeah. Yeah. Super amazing. Uh, in the score too, at the beginning of the score, he lists all the birds and they appear in order, although he does go back and use birds again and such. But uh, I'm going to show you this list right now because it's so remarkable and, and and for my own reference, I had to like screen cap it so or you know screenshot it so that I could refer to which birds are doing what in the score because not only does he list all the birds at the front of the score, but then as you're paging through the music, it says, "Oh, you're the nightingale. Now you're the song thrush. Now you're the white throat. Now you're the this, the blackbird, the whatever." I'm just imagining a. a- concert name your instrument here that is going to be featured that you know they won the part of say the nightingale and so they decided all right i better go sit with the nightingale so they're like out whether they're in nature or they're in an urban park or something with their i don't know flute or clarinet or whatever Mm -hmm. and they're just like playing to the birds and everybody else is like shut up (laughs) exactly they're like just trying to become one with the birds and learning it's pretty great this piece also orchestral piece. So, you know, full orchestra with brass players, the whole nine yards, uh, also a piano solo. So what you hear off the bat, and there are several sections throughout the piece where it's just literally just solo piano. So uh, even though that's what we'll hear first, don't be tricked. It's an actually uh, full orchestral piece. So before we get to hearing the piano play the nightingale, let's actually listen to a nightingale. You'll hear those repeated notes, for sure. So the nightingale continues for quite some time before other instruments pop in. This is actually his second wife, by the way, playing piano. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. in there as well. One of my favorite parts in this whole piece, and we're going to listen to it in in just a minute, is a duet between the glockenspiel and celesta, which is great because we did an episode on those two instruments uh, several weeks back now. Yeah. Um, But that one is, I find, uh, very fun as well because for me, that's one of the ones that sounds the most. Like I can listen to a YouTube video of that bird and listen to the celesta and the glockenspiel and be like, oh, yeah. Hmm. Because otherwise I think it's pretty hard. I mean, birds, first of all, have dialects. So a cardinal in Minnesota is going to sound slightly different than a cardinal out in New sure. York, such, such. Um, and then, of course, you you know, put 80 years between them. Who knows how their song might slightly change over time mm-hmm. or, or whatnot. I mean, it's just, I think it's really kind of hard to tell yeah. sometimes to match them up. But I know it's real because I know that he was a brilliant mind with an well, attention you, to detail. Even you can hear in the first one we heard with the, I think it was, it's called Rossignol and Yeah, the Nightingale, yeah. Yeah, that it's like, I mean, it mimicked it quite well. Now, would I listen to that? Am I as, as much of a bird lover where I could listen to this piece and say, that's a Nightingale? Unfortunately, no. But I mean, I love that you put them side by side because I bet if people put these side by side, throughout the whole piece, they could at least, like you said, find similarities. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're saying this sounds like a duck call yeah. and it's actually a robin, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something. exactly, yeah. So that's cool. Do you want to hear the glockenspiel part? Yeah. All right, before we hear that part, let's listen to the bird 
that he's mimicking with those two instruments. It's called um, it's called the white throat, which is not the same as here in the U.S. We have a white throated sparrow. This is not the same bird. Super different call. Different. Um, I don't I don't know my tree of like species family that I but it's a different it's not the same as the white throated sparrow okay. just so you know so this is literally just called the common white throat sounds like a little smoker bird it's like <laughs> <laughs> so amazing i mean i hear that i hear that and i'm just like how could you possibly transcribe that for an instrument it blows my mind but this is what he did with the celesta which again is a looks like a little tiny upright piano um that has a very ringing sound to it and then the glockenspiel which is a little tiny metal xylophone basically that's played usually with metal mallets and so it's it's also has a very sharp ring sound to it a little sharper yeah, the, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yep. So, uh, so here's this section um, in the recording that we're using that you're hearing. We're using um, actually a recording that you can watch the score along with on YouTube, and also the same recording is found uh, on iTunes as well. So we're using that that same recording. So this happens at about 13 minutes and 34 seconds into the piece. This little duet, and I love it. wonder if there'd be like i feel like nowadays if this were if bjork were to take a stab at this she'd <laughs> do it with those instruments but she'd put like sandpaper <laughs> on it you know to make it not not more accurate because i have no idea what that would sound like right but to give it that just little bit like would that create some sort of coarseness or would it not right would it just muffle it yeah um no, but it's cool. Yeah, it's super, super cool. cool. Yeah. I think this is such a fascinating piece. And and really it is, I mean, I, I seriously just went back and forth between watching the score and listening and like looking up bird calls, which just here's a little pro tip for you. If you do that, because we'll put this link with the score in there and you want to like follow through and be like, oh, there's, you know, there's the blue tit, there's the blackbird, there's the nightingale, there's the whatever. Uh, you could be a guest on Scores and Pours because you're that much of a dork. I'll yeah. throw that out there first of all. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. But what, when we put that link up, um, you know, if you want to look for these birds, make sure you're searching for them in French. Um, so don't put mm. in Robin song because you'll get the American Robin. The European Robin is completely different, looks completely different, sounds completely yeah, good different. Call. So then you could you could just look up the French name of it and then chant. C H A N T chant. Chant yeah. is the French word for song, and and that's the best way to find the birds. Just so you're not getting them confused with the northern uh, American birds. Yeah, yeah. Very um, important words of advice. Yeah. So that's kind of uh, my my uh, contribution to our bird conversation. I um, again, there are so, just some beautiful pieces. There's a, a beautiful piece by an Italian composer named Adorino Respighi that we'll probably talk about sometime in the future about birds and lots of really great examples, some good Dvorak and all kinds of things. So Cool. We'll put up a link to, to there's an image online that shows like bird damage on the vines. Wow. It shows a few different ways that people can try to combat bird damage. One of them, <laughs> of which is a propane cannon which is like pretty amazing <laughs> they have electric versions too but when i was working at this vineyard in oregon a while back we needed a propane cannon at one of our vineyards because it was literally i mean you were like you look up and it was just birds wow it was just it was just like horrible how much fruit was lost depending on the vintage and man you need to go set it on a timer and it'd be like and you need to be usually when just you, to scare them off. Yeah, and usually <laughs> birds are really smart, so they get really they get used to that noise, and so it only works if you move it around, if you set Whoa. it to different timers, like every other day or every day even. And so that, and you also need to be careful that you're not scaring away 
protected birds and protect oh. other protected species around that would get scared shitless from a propane cannon, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and it doesn't shoot anything out. It just makes a loud noise. Yeah. But even then that can, that noise pollution can be very destructive to the environment. So you need to be really careful mm-hmm. doing stuff like that. But another way to combat and to try to not lose 10 to 30% of your vineyard in a year, more if you're a smaller producer, is you can spray, you can make like, make like different teas, different preps, but you have to be really careful, like biodynamic preps. Sure. But you have to be really careful with that because if you use like garlic, which is a great deterrent, well, your wine's going to taste like garlic. Like anything that's going to settle on the fruit and become kind of part of the fruit is going to, your wine's going to end up tasting like that. So you got to be careful with that. One thing that is, is used as a spray, it's called, pardon me, methylanthranilate. Yes. (laughs) Which is a flavoring agent and it tastes kind of like grapes. Okay. And so some people are spraying that around the vineyard. Oh. So that... Distraction. You know, yeah. yeah. Yep. That's one thing. Nice. Yes. There are visual things you can do in your vineyard, like mylar tape. You know, think of a mylar balloon. Yeah. You know, tape like that. But again, birds get used to that. So you yeah. kind of got to move it around. Sounds can deter, like I mentioned. Lasers. There are lasers you can buy and sort of shooting those around the vineyard. <laughs> uh-huh. um, wow. And they actually, they can dam- reduce damage by like 70 to 95% Amazing. because you can set them up so that they're really intermittent and that they're like abstract and random and if you have enough of them you can you know i mean granted it's gonna be like a laser light show the owls are gonna be like wtf and they might book but those are ways that you can get rid of or try to i should say like mitigate your problem with Mm -hmm. birds one detail that i thought and i still think is fascinating is like the creation of new grapes and how birds can contribute to that so if you have like a chardonnay grape and you take the seeds from a Chardonnay plant and you go find a way to like pollinate it, but you go plant it in your backyard and a vine grows, it's not going to be Chardonnay. It's sort of like I can't give birth to myself, right? And that's the same with wine. You can propagate Chardonnay by a cutting and splicing it and like fostering that cutting to grow again, but you can't like give Chardonnay can't give birth to itself, right? So we'll just use Chardonnay as an example. A bird can come in nibble, nibble, nibble on some awesome Chardonnay and go fly 400 miles and shit out that seed. Seeds can be dormant for, like, they're almost as smart as, I mean, let's, <laughs> they probably are smarter than birds because I love me some vitis. But grapes can, seeds themselves can lie dormant under the ground for years wow. until the you know, conditions are right for them to sprout and to create a vine. Mm-hmm. But that said, seed, shat, dormant <laughs> conditions, it's not going to sprout Chardonnay right. again, right? Yeah. So grapes are incredibly invasive species, as much as I hate to admit that, because all they want to do is grow. I mean, if you see, I see vitis almost everywhere I walk in mm-hmm. some parks, some kind of bigger parks here in Minneapolis. And some of them maybe should be there, but a lot of them probably should not. And they're like... Obviously, there aren't grapes. It's just like all Vitus wants to do is like thrive and live, like grow as high and wide as it can. Mm -hmm. And so you're not in that way, as cool as that sounds, like, wow, a new seedling of of grape growing somewhere in the world and it's like a wild vine. And yes, go take care of it. Make wine out of it. Fine. But (laughs) 99.99% of the time that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. and you're left with like a new invasive species of vitis, which can be like, yeah, probably not, not okay. Mm. So those are reasons why birds F up vineyards (laughs) by spreading the vine where maybe they shouldn't. Uh, It just never occurred. That's one of those other things I just never thought of. I mean, how destructive, of course they're super, they're destructive to crops. Why wouldn't I, I mean, and and vineyards are crops. So I, I just, I never really even thought about that. I thank you for enlightening me on that. Topic. Of course. And yeah. check out like I, I mentioned netting is a great way to try to protect the fruit from birds. The problem is is netting can be expensive. It takes a lot of like your a tractor can put on netting over vines and it but it usually they can either be done two ways. It can be over a whole row of vines, but it can also be like just where the fruit is. Mm. And so you're kind of like r- almost wrapping it around mm-hmm. an entire row, but yeah. just 
you know, none of the canopy, none of the, where the leaves are. And sometimes that's less expensive, but you have to like position that. And I, I, I can tell you a gazillion times the amount of times I've worked at vineyards and we've done netting and all of a sudden you see a little bird freaked out because they're caught oh. and they're like going in the netting and they're like, they're flying back and forth yeah. trying to get out and you want to let them out, of course, yeah, and you yeah. try, but in the end it got in there. So if if something was like yep. maintaining their calm, they could get in there and be like, "Ooh, <laughs> jackpot!" Yeah, and then like house. weasel their way out. Yeah. So I mean, it, nothing is foolproof. Nothing is it, again. It's like this is a human against nature thing, and nature's always going to win. But in the end, there are ways that people can try to reduce that destruction and produce some really great wine. Cheers to that. This wine is absolutely delicious. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thanks to the people at Libation to, for donating this bottle to Scores and Pours. To Scores and Pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode. You'll find a playlist and a wine list. You can also support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours and find a link to hoodies and t-shirts. We are on Instagram at scores and pours, and that's a great place to get a hold of us to email us with any questions, show ideas, critiques, all the things. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sir Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Jill, Jill.